Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, glory to you, Lord Christ. For we'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who received the two talents made two talents more. But he who'd received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. And he who'd received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So also the one who'd received the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. The master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So also the one who'd received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you scatter no seed. Therefore, I was afraid, and I hid your talent in the ground. His master replied, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. You then ought to have invested my money with the bankers so that at my coming, I would have received back what is mine own with interest. So take his talent and give it to the one who has the 10. For to everyone who has, even more shall be given to them and they will have an abundance. And to those who have none, even what they have will be taken from them. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Are you enjoying your life? I mean, surely, are you enjoying your life? Perhaps depending on the day or the week or the circumstance, you may answer differently. But are you enjoying your life? Here's what Matthew 25 tells us, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles. Matthew 25, Jesus is telling us that the only way you will enjoy your life truly is when you realize that your life is not your own. The only way you're going to truly enjoy your life, 
is when you and I realize our life is not our own. You know, when I was a non-believer, of the many things I used to say about the church, one of my favorite was say, oh, the only thing the church wants is your money. You've heard that criticism before? Especially in this type of passage today that's clearly a stewardship text. We, oh yeah, all the church wants is our money. Well, it's not true. We want much more than that. The church wants everything. The church wants your whole life, everything you have, because that's what Jesus has called the church to ask of his disciples. Jesus is asking each and every one of us to give over the whole of our life, everything that we have. Why? Because it's all his. We say that as we come to our communion portion of the service every week, right? We say, every, all things come from you, O Lord. All things come of you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. Here's what Jesus is saying. The good news that Jesus is speaking over a people who want to enjoy our lives, want to enjoy all that God has placed into our lives. Here's where the enjoyment will truly come from. According to Matthew 25, Jesus is saying, everything you have has been entrusted to you. Everything you and I have has been entrusted. It's not ours, it's his, but he's entrusted it to us. And everything you and I have has been entrusted to us in order to be enlarged. Yes, grown, not just protected and stewarded and kept safe, but enlarged and expanded and grown, given to grow. And the good news is that everything you and I have has been entrusted to us to be enlarged for his purposes. And that is the way we will begin to enjoy this life. That is the source of joy. That is what the secret recipe is to understand what everything is and what it's for. And we find the joy in the gospel. See, first we got to start with the fact that everything we have has been entrusted to us. Look at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, Who's the man going on the journey in the parable? I mean, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, obviously the church could look back on this moment and go, oh, he's the man, right? I mean, he died for our sins, rose again, and then ascended into heaven. I am going away. It is a good thing that I go, for I'll send the Spirit. He's leaving. He's going on a journey, and he's surely returning. He's the man going on the journey, and we're the servants. And he's entrusted to us his property, everything. Everything that is his, he's placed into our hands. And here's what's amazing about the fact that we are stewards, we are regents of all that he's entrusted to us, is that that entrusting moment is both profound and personal. What God has entrusted you with is profound and personal. It's profound in the sense that it's huge. Look at verse 15. He gave them talents. 
Now, a talent in the first century was 20 years of wages. So this is not a small amount that he's handing his servants. You might say, well, which servant am I? Do I get the five or do I get the two or I get the one? It doesn't matter where you fall in that order. It's still profound. The most basic unit he gives to us is enormous and profound. And just to be clear, you you do notice that it's not about how much has been given in comparison to others. To each as they're given this profound this profound gift that's been entrusted to their hands, when they work it faithfully, what's the response? It's identical to the one who's been given five and makes it 10 and to the one who's given two and makes it four. They both hear the identical words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What has been entrusted to us is profound. It is enormous. It's huge. And people have often debated, what exactly is the talent in the parable? I mean, clearly in the parable, it's money, right? In the context when Jesus first spoke this, it's money. He's handing them money to invest and use and trade with. But isn't it interesting that the word talents has come to mean in our world something a little different, doesn't it? When you hear the word talent, when I say you're very talented, you don't think I've got a lot of money We think that word means ability and skill and giftedness, right? Exactly. I was looking up the etymology, you know, the origin of words the other day in preparation for this, and I was shocked when I read a secular dictionary talking about the etymology of the word, and they're trying to explain how did talents move in the Latin, which meant money, like there's no question it meant money, and then somehow over years turned into this understanding of gifts and abilities. And, and they try to go through these weird you know, explanations. Well, in the French, maybe it could slightly mean this or that. Finally, at the end, they submit to the fact, you know, begrudgingly, that, well, maybe it is just what Jesus said in Matthew 25 that changed the meaning of the word. Exactly. This parable changed the meaning of that word in human history to apply not just to the money and the wealth that God has put into our hands, but to everything else. Every bit of us, our abilities, our time, our talents, our treasures, as we often say. In fact, the best way to think of talent is this. A talent, the talent that has been entrusted to you is whatever God has given to you that he's gonna ask you about later. Whatever God has given to you and he's gonna ask about later. That's your talent. That's the talent. It's profound. But it's also thankfully personalized. What does verse 15 say? To each according to their ability. These talents are given intentionally. The master knows his servants and he knows what he's doing when he gives these talents. We often struggle with that. I don't know about you. I I grew up in a household where my parents didn't lie to me about this. I mean, some of you have lied to your children, and and I know it's well-intentioned, but my parents never told me I could be anything I wanted to be. They never told me that. I know it's well-meaning when you tell your children that. It's a lie. They can't be anything they want to be, and I couldn't be anything I want to be. My, My parents knew. My dad would tell me, you know, Paul, I know you're playing hockey, but you're not very good at it. You know, just just want to make sure that, you know... This isn't sort of a career plan for you. 
Um, same thing with mathematics or with, with scientific reasoning. Uh, you know, I, I remember when I was 15, I said, I think I'm going to be an engineer. And my dad sat me down and said, son, you know that engineers need to use math. Those buildings and roads don't just emerge sort of magically on their own as you dream them up, right? I said, oh, he goes, you're not going to be an engineer. But my parents would say, well, if you can find a vocation where you spend your time talking a lot, yes, we think we could probably <laughs> support that. To each according to their ability. The master knows what he's doing when he gives us the talents. And the challenge is that third servant who is afraid and digs in the ground and hides the master's money, well, that is the one who doesn't really trust the master's choice, doesn't really believe and trust. It's a vote of no confidence in the master's decision. I mean, I don't know why you gave this to me, uh, so I guess I'm just going to hide it over here. And when you get back, I'll just begrudgingly hand it back to you. I don't know what you were doing. It's a vote of non-confidence. When we look at the size of what God has entrusted us with in this life and how he's personally formed it, those words from Jeremiah chapter one, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations that God knew what he was doing. When he gave you the abundance of the talents in your life, do we believe it though? You know, it's interesting. It's like that man who comes to the pastor asking for prayer one day. It's stewardship season in the parish and the man comes to the pastor and says, you know, I know you've been talking about giving, you know, generously giving and tithes and offerings. And he says, you know, I just, I gotta let you know, pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely wealthy. I mean, I've just been blessed by the Lord with this just growing global empire of a business. And there's just, I, I, I mean, cl clearly I could never give a tithe of that to the church. So would you pray for me for wisdom? And the pastor said, absolutely. Let's pray right now. Father, would you reduce this man's wealth to a place where he's comfortable to tithe? Do we believe that the master knew what he was doing when he placed these talents into our hand and trusted them to us? Or do we not? Are we burying our master's treasure in the ground? But here's the thing. It's not just that he's entrusted us with everything we have, but he's entrusted it to us to be enlarged, to be expanded, to be invested and grow. Verse 16, both the first and second servant at once go and trade with their talents. It's the marketplace language. They invest, they work it. And as a result of working that investment, they grow it. And here's what's amazing. These first two servants, hear me carefully, are not doing something exceptional. They're not the ones where you go, well, you know, among the Christians in the world, some just have that really great ability to kind of expand and grow, you know, the Lord's kingdom. No, it's expected. It's not exceptional. You notice that strange, hard moment in verse 26 when the third servant makes an accusation against the master. He says, you know, I know you to be a hard man. That's not true. We'll talk about that in the next point. But he says, you reap where you do not sow and gather where you scatter no seed. I mean, essentially what he's saying to him is, you have ridiculous expectations of expansion. 
I mean, you are so ridiculous, master, in the way you want to see things grow. You go to places where it seems completely impossible to grow. You have ridiculous picture in your mind and dream of expansion of all this. And the master says, you bet I do. I do have a massive view of expansion. I expect my good news to spread to the ends of the earth. It's not exceptional that these servants expand what's been entrusted to them. It's expected. And that's the expectation that is placed over us. That we would invest, that we would work, that we'd use these talents for the expansion of his kingdom in this world. And you know, this work of being entrusted to expand and work these talents, it's actually preparing us for even greater. I mean, listen carefully what the master says when he returns. This is, of course, in our context, the second coming. The the Lord returns in his power and glory. And what does he say? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I mean, as profound as what he's given you now, he's going to call it little down the road. In comparison, I will now set you over much. There is more coming. It doesn't matter how large the responsibility he's entrusted you with, what's coming after the resurrection is even greater. And you can say, what are you talking about? And what I'm talking about is Revelation 22. We read it at funerals. It's comforting. There's the new heavens and the new earth coming, and there's no longer pain or tears or sorrow for the old order of things has passed away. And then there's this strange phrase in verse 5 of Revelation 22 that says, and we shall reign with him. And you say, "Uh, correction, Lord, you will reign and we'll watch you reign. We'll be reigned by you. And that's not what the Bible says. Consistently, the promise has always been that Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, will reign over all and we will reign under his rule. Reign over creation. Don't you remember the beginning of the creation story when God made us in his own image? And he said, you shall have dominion over the beasts of the sea and over the land and over the whole of creation. Have dominion over it. That dominion will finally be perfected and realized in the new heavens and the new earth. You and I will have responsibility under Christ for ruling over the whole of the cosmos. This life of being entrusted with the master's possessions to be enlarged is to prepare us for an even greater investment that's going to be placed in our hands in the future. It's the reason why you get strange passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10. I say strange because for 2,000 years, Christians have tried to figure out what 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10 actually means when it's talking about Head coverings. I know all of you have sorted this out clearly because we're so confused on what exactly is he talking about, about women putting on head coverings in church. I'm not going to solve it for you this morning. We'll leave that to Dr. Bales. But what effectively he's saying is found in the verse that says, for the sake of the angels. And you want to say, what do angels have to do with this question of head coverings and good order in church? And it's this. If 1 Corinthians 11 is saying anything, what it's saying is let's behave and put on you know, a good posture in front of the world. Let's, let's be well-behaved believers, right? And we do it for the sake of the angels because what Paul is saying 
is the angels will one day be ruled over by you. God did not create some higher angelic order above the image bearers. There's only one creature in all creation that was made in God's image, and it's us. We will rule one day over the cosmos, including the angels. And so what Paul is essentially saying is, would you please behave in church, Christians, because the angels are watching and they're still trying to figure out how is it possible these people are going to reign over us one day? Please behave yourself, O church. The angels are watching and they are still very concerned. But that's the promise of scripture. The promise is that we will reign. This expanded picture not exceptional, expected. You know, I think about this in the context of the role that I was given this week, becoming general secretary over GAFCON, which are global Anglicans consisting of 85% of the Anglican communion. That's roughly 60 million Anglicans. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be dean and rector at Christ Church and general secretary. I know you people are worried about this, right? And there's going to be a frequently asked questions thing on the website on Tuesday in the call that's going to talk a bit about this. But truly, just to be clear, you heard what Father Jonathan said, I'm not leaving. And as I flew home from London, I was like, how do I keep all this clear and straight and keep the priorities right? And here, here's what I came up with. It's, it's rough. It was in mid-flight from Heathrow to here. But here's what I came up with. I got five fingers on my hand. And here's how I'm thinking about it as far as priorities, keeping the main thing the main thing. My first love is Jesus. That's that, okay, just let's be clear on that. That's Jesus, the first love. My second love, her name is Monica. Now you may say, that doesn't sound so romantic. Your wife's your second love. Yeah, and I'm her second love as well. If you don't understand that, you really need to talk to a pastor. Um, we can talk to you about why Jesus needs to be your first love and your spouse needs to be your second love. My kids are my third love. And you're like, I thought the kids should be the second love. No, no, no. Again, come talk to us because if you think you can love your children, if you don't love your spouse more than your children, again, you need some scriptural encouragement. My fourth love is Christ Church, which, you know, doesn't sound very exciting. You're like, we're the fourth love. Well, yeah, Jesus, Monica, the girls, and then you. Pretty good in that order that you're number four, and then the fifth is the world. It comes after Christ Church. And as long as I can keep that priority structure straight, why can't we believe that God can do this? Because God is in the business of expansion. He's always challenging us in his grace to go further than what we could ask or imagine. And when he does it, he grows our capacity. He grows the capacity for love within us. Just like the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day, so do our hearts grow with more capacity to love the more that he places in our hands. Is that not what 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 means? when it says that may you abound and increase in love. Don't just love, but abound and increase in love. See, what God is doing and declaring to us here in Matthew 25 is that everything you and I have is entrusted to us so that it will be enlarged for him, for the kingdom, 
And this is where we find true enjoyment. I mean, this is where we come back full circle to say, and in doing so, you actually will find the joy of living. It is in giving up your life that you find your life. It is in recognizing that your life is not your own, that you've been bought for a price, that you, in fact, find the true enjoyment of life. And here's the enjoyment. Here's the enjoyment that Jesus is pointing to in this passage. The enjoyment of not being afraid to try and fail. The joy of not being afraid to try and fail because our failures have been forgiven. Why? Well, look at the man here in verse 25 and 26. What does he say? He says, I knew you to be a hard man, so I was afraid. Do you see the order there? His view of the master is that he's hard and therefore fear is his relationship with the master. And I can't tell you the number of people who have that kind of relationship with God. They think God is hard, that God is angry. And therefore there's a great degree of fear. You know, it's interesting that Abraham Maslow, you know the guy who did the Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You've heard of that before? Sociologist and psychologist. Abraham Maslow, I want to get this quote right. He says this, he says that an individual's Ability to grow is to the extent that he or she is not crippled by fear and to the extent that he or she feels safe enough to dare. Do you hear that? An individual's ability to grow is based on the extent to which they feel safe enough to dare. The third servant does not feel safe enough to dare because he doesn't know the master. The first servant and the second servant know the master. And so knowing the master, they feel safe enough to dare it all, to go big. And here's why. Oh, how I love the gospel. Verse 30, the probably most crippling, terrifying verse in the whole passage. You heard it at the very end of the reading. Right, verse 30, what's said of this third servant? Cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's horrible, unless you know the gospel. See, in this passage, All the way through the language of servant has been used. Six times, servant, 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 servant. And if we've got biblical ears, they should perk up because servant in scripture throughout the whole of the Hebrew Bible is pointing to Israel's role as the servant of the Lord. That Israel, the people of God, called to be God's servant in the world, to faithfully be entrusted with everything and expand it for his purposes, right? This is the picture all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, right? I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? This is the picture of the servant's role. But the people of God, generation after generation, failed to be the servants. We failed to live up to the call. We failed to sacrificially pour out our lives. 
We clung to our lives and clung to our own agendas and rebelled against the Lord. And so suddenly in Isaiah, the prophet begins to talk about another kind of servant. He prophesies of another servant who's coming. And there's servant songs throughout Isaiah talking about this servant who will do justly and do rightly that finally will accomplish the call of the servants of God in his own person. And they began to call that person the Messiah. The Messiah will come, the true servant. Well, here's the truth. Is the Messiah, the true servant, came. And it's not just that he was the perfect servant, finally. But part of his role, according to Isaiah chapter 53, was also to bear all of the failures of the servants. He was pierced for our transgressions, my servant. Crushed for our iniquities, my servant. Upon him was the punishment that brought our peace and by his wounds, the servant's wounds, we are healed. Suddenly, when you hear these words in verse 30, Jesus saying, arguably just days before his crucifixion, That verse 30, the servant shall be, the worthless servant shall be cast out into outer darkness. That he shall be in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, condemned and totally rejected. Suddenly as he hangs on the cross, bearing the sins of humanity, every failure of every servant, past, present, and future. And he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, the servant, was cast into the outer darkness. He, the servant's was in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth on our behalf so that we never have to go there again. This is the good news of God. That verse 30 is not the scary verse of this text. Verse 30 is the gospel. Look at what he's born for you and I. Your failures are forgiven. Do you now feel safe enough to dare? To take the talents that God has entrusted you with and enlarge them as you work them for his kingdom purposes and thereby find the true enjoyment of life. You know, I close with this that many of you know the story. A number of years ago, I was walking into a funeral and I got a phone call on my cell phone from a search firm that asked uh, if I would pray uh, about a opening for a rector job down in Little Church in Plano. And I said, nope, I won't pray about that. And I kind of got them off their script and they said, oh, well, could you just like think about it? We'll send you. I said, nope, don't need to pray about it. Not interested. I mean, I was comfortable. I was settled. I had my life carefully curated around me. I believed that I was truly enjoying my life, nice and controlled. And they said, you're a pastor. Shouldn't you pray about this? I said, I don't need to pray about it. And they said, we'll call you in a week. I said, good luck. Click. And then I got on a plane and went to England and went to a monastery. And the Lord began to deeply speak. And I was brought to the end of myself. As I like to say, much snot on the rug, as they say. You know what I'm talking about. And the only 
phrase that made sense, and I kept writing it over over again in the journal, was what I felt like God was saying was, will you still adventure with me? And so I talked to Monica later that afternoon. We FaceTimed, and it was six hours difference. It was morning there, and it looked like her eyes were puffy. And I said, have you been crying? And she said, yes. She said, the Lord woke me up, and I got up, and I've been in prayer and, and, and crying. It's not on the rug, and, and just... And the only word that makes any sense is this word adventure, adventure, adventure. She says, what is that adventure about? And I picked up my journal. I showed her, will you still adventure with me? She said, what's it all about? I said, it's that church in Plano. (laughs) And when I came back at the end of that week and the search firm dutifully called me and said, well, have you prayed about it? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm open. And they were like, what? The Lord met me in that prayer. And friends, I can tell you, in being willing to dare to risk, dare to fail, dare to try, I can't tell you the enjoyment that we found in coming here. Are you enjoying your life? Jesus is telling you in Matthew 25 that if you truly want to enjoy your life, you need to recognize that your life's not your own. That's how you find enjoyment. Recognizing that everything you have, everything you have is entrusted to you by God to be enlarged for his purposes in the world and that in doing so, you and I will find an enjoyment of life that we've never known before. The question before everyone afresh today from the Lord and each and every day as we come to this table and kneel down at his meal is the Lord again saying to us, do you remember the gospel? Do you remember you do not have to be afraid of failure? Do you remember that I've borne every failure in you as you risk and as you grow and as you work those talents? And he says to us week after week, again and again, will you still adventure with me? And one day, he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.